Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jason, singers, musicians. Just beautiful, beautiful. Well, we're in this series on great passages of the Bible. We've looked at Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath, and Paul and Silas in singing praises at midnight. Those passages that we learned when we were in maybe Sunday school or VBS that, that we loved, and we're revisiting them in this study and thinking about them again and uh, rejoicing in them again. So today we are looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Gentlemen, same problem I had in early service. I can't seem to move my slides here. Fix me. There we go. Now it's moving back and forth. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 3. The time is about 600 years before the birth of Christ. Actually, David and his uh, uh, Jewish friends were kidnapped and taken to Babylon on uh, 605 uh, B.C. And uh, the the things that take place in chapter 1 and chapter 2 are very close together, maybe within a year of each other. And uh, Daniel and his friends were about... uh, Scholars uh, give a span from about 13 to 17... I lean towards that older age of maybe 16 or 17 when they were taken. And uh, chapter 3 takes place about 20 years later. So these men now are in their mid-30s. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in their mid-30s. And then Daniel, when he faces the lion's den, that's another 50 years later. So Daniel will remember is in his mid-80s at that point. But at this point in time, chapter 3... These men are in their mid-30s, about 20 years after they were taken captive. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had the dream in chapter 2, and David uh, Daniel interpreted that dream, and he talked about the king as being the head of gold. Maybe he'd been thinking about it for a while, and now he builds a whole uh, statue, an image maybe of himself even. That's a very probable thing. It's an image of himself made of gold. Now, it wouldn't be solid gold, but it would be totally covered with... It was completely gold in the sense that it was completely covered in gold. And uh, that's where we find our text here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, that's the king of Babylon, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and breadth thereof six cubits. So this statue was 90 feet tall, a nine-story building. And it was nine feet wide, so it's a very slim figure. And, uh, And he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. The word Dura really means a a plain, a flat place with mountains or walls around it. By the way, uh, archaeologists found, have found a large, look like a foundation type stone uh, that's about six miles, 
southeast of, of uh, old ancient Babylon, and many scholars believe this is where the statue stood on this uh, platform. At any rate, uh, the king makes this huge uh, image, and it's in, a, it's in a big open plain where many people can see it for miles and miles around. Verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes and governors and the captains and the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So he invited all the officers in the whole kingdom, must have been thousands of them, and uh, big shots, little shots, all of them. And they're all there in that big open plain and there for the dedication of this huge image. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together today. Make it profitable for each of us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I love the story that's told about a, a Scottish lady who lived up in the mountains by herself and when she would come into town, sometimes the men would give her a hard time. She was an elderly lady, and they liked to poke a little fun at her, you know. And they would say things like, What in the world do you do up there by yourself all day? And, and she would tell them something like this. She would say, Well, I, I get my Bible, and I read my Bible some, and let God talk to me. And then she said, And, and then I pray, and I, and I talk to God. And, and then I get my hymn book out, and I sing to the Lord. Then she said, and when I get too tired to sing or to, to read or to pray, I just sit still and let Jesus love me. You know, God doesn't just want us to be saved and on our way to heaven. He wants us to know him intimately, like this little Scottish lady. Find our joy in him. Find our peace in him. Find our purpose in him. In him. He wants us to know him well and walk in intimacy with him. Well, one of the ways he accomplishes that in our lives is through temptations and trials and testings and problems and burdens and hardships and difficult uh, places and difficult times. And certainly the, in this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face temptations and a hard time and great difficulty. You know, sometimes believers have asked me over the years about something they're going through. Did I think it was of the, uh, if, is it a temptation from the devil or is it a testing from the Lord? And I've heard preachers spend a lot of time trying to distinguish between the two and and I've read chapters and books that took up the thought and with a lot of detail. But I think it's incorrect to try to separate the two. I think when we're in a difficult situation in life, it is a trial and it is a temptation at the same time. I like to call it a trial-temptation complex. Something happens, we're in a circumstance... God wants us to, to, uh, to go this way, to have this response, to have this attitude. And in that, he's molding us. On the other hand, in that same, at the same time, Satan's wanting us to respond in this way to that trial. 
So it's a temptation. He wants us to, re, to walk this way and to do this thing and to have this attitude. And so it takes place at the same time. Trial, temptation, complex. God allows these things to come for a purpose. And one purpose is to draw us close to Him. There's some other purposes too. Look at your screen here for a minute. And uh, let's look at some of those purposes. Uh, to draw us close to Him in intimacy. He allows difficulty to come our way. To teach us. There's some things we only learn, as Isaiah says, in the dark. Some things we only really learn in the dark. And there's treasures there, he says. And then to strengthen us. And, and maybe I should have put uh, that we can learn to draw from His strength. Because it's really His strength infused into us. But we learn those things during difficulty. And then to use us. He wants to touch the lives of somebody else when, when they see you going through a difficulty. People watch. When they see you going through a difficulty and you respond correctly like God wants you to, God's using you to encourage them or to, to help them. Or maybe you, you go the wrong way. And Satan uses it to discourage people and draw people in the wrong direction. But God wants to use us to touch people in the right way. And then the last thing is this, to transform us. All of these things working together to, to transform us and mold us into the image of Christ. We should be more like Jesus every year, every month, along our journey. We should be coming more and more like the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, with that said, this temptation trial complex, I see three of these a major temptation trial complex in this chapter. If you look at your screen again, the first one, I believe, is the trial temptation complex of conformity. They want, they want these three, uh, they want everybody in the kingdom to bow down to this, uh, to this image of gold. You know, the world is not satisfied to go their own way and do their own thing and let you go your way and do your own thing for Jesus. No, 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 no. The world wants to make you like them. And, uh, you know, uh, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. That first word... Uh, be you not conformed uh, is a Greek word that means to be molded from the outside, like clay. And uh, so we use the term peer pressure. You know, there's peer pressure, not only at school, at work, and in your neighborhood, in your family. There's peer pressure from the world to make you like the world and uh, to conform to the world. So the world's always trying to conform us. So there, even though it's not exactly like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that temptation trial complex is uh, affecting us. We're facing that too. That second word in that text, don't be conformed to the world, but be you transformed, that second word in the Greek means to be changed from the inside out. That's the way God changes us. He changes us from the inside out and uh, molding us and making us. And so the first one then is this idea of conformity. Now you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge image. 
and it's in this plain. Thousands of people are gathered there, and there is a huge orchestra. They've got instruments, stringed instruments, they've got wind instruments, they've got percussion instruments, and, and they're all there. And, uh, and it, 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 try to imagine it in your mind. It's a, it's a festivity. It's a celebration and a dedication. People would have on their best clothes, colorful clothes, and, and maybe all of the musicians had on the same, uh, you know, the same clothing, and there was a huge place where all the music, musicians were gathered and uh, people were milling around. They probably had food here and there and, and so forth to this big celebration in this big open plain around the golden image. And then a herald speaks up at the right time. A herald speaks up and uh, loud enough and uh, maybe with some others along the way relaying the message. And he says, when the music starts to play... Everybody is to bow down and worship the golden image. And uh, if not, they will be cast into the fiery furnace and will die. Now the furnace was, you know, it was an object lesson. It was right there on the premises. It had been used prior uh, to, the, uh, to the burning people. It was used for uh, melting the metals, you know, that went into the building of the idol. The idol would not have been solid gold. Uh, it would have been made out of some other substance, and then it, the whole thing was coated in gold. But that's a tremendous amount of gold. I mean, this thing's 90 feet tall and uh, 9 feet wide. And so the furnace is there, and the command uh, is given and uh, they expect everyone to bow. Now, the word worship is very important here. The word worship in this one chapter is used 11 times concerning the golden idol. These people are not just pledging allegiance to their nation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held high offices. You remember in chapter 2, uh, after Daniel interpreted the dream, Daniel was put to a high office and he requested the king put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a high office too, and they did. And now they've been serving faithfully the government for 20 years. They were faithful to the government. They were loyal to the government. They wasn't just asking for you to pledge allegiance to the government. Christians, you know... Christians put their right hand over their heart and pledge allegiance to the flag, and rightfully so. I think it's right and good and beautiful that we do so. And, uh, but we're pledging allegiance uh, to the government, but we're not worshiping. That's what made the difference. This is not just a political gathering. This is a religious gathering, and they are to worship at the feet of this idol, representing, of course, in some way, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Maybe it was even made in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he saw himself uh, as a god. And of course, I don't have time to talk about this, but that's a, uh, that's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist in the last days and with his great image and the mark of the beast and so forth. But anyway, in, in this context, uh, the herald gives uh, the command. And so the, uh, the pressure for conformity is there. Uh, 
Now, to give you an idea, you know there's no big idols of gods and goddesses in America. Well, maybe there is. Here's one. This is the goddess of the earth. A goddess from Korea and Japan and the areas round about. And uh, this is in Cottonwood, Arizona. Uh, and you can see a little bit of the size of this. The reason I bring it up is so you can see the size. And uh, in, in the next picture, even better. That's an average-sized man standing right up against the base there. See how tall that image is? That image is 39 feet tall. So the golden image would be twice as tall and add 10 feet to it. So imagine what a striking image that would be out in the middle of the plain. And, uh, uh, and you could see it for miles around and people now, thousands of people gathered around it. And uh, eventually the time came and they, and they began to play the instruments and almost all at the exact same time as though it had been rehearsed, everybody fell down on their knees with their hands stretched out and their face to the ground to worship this idol. And it looked like a sea. All you could do is see people's backs, like a sea of their backs and heads. Everybody bowed except three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The scene may have looked... Something like this. Everyone bowing except the three. Uh, they took their stand for the Creator, the Lord God whom they worshipped and served, the God of the Bible. Now they knew they were going to get in bad trouble. The consequence would be thrown into a, a fire, a fiery furnace. And so they took their stand anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, they stood. You and I have to make a stand. Sometimes in particular situations, we have to take a stand because of what's going on around us. And uh, so they did so. We have to do so as well. Here's, here's, you know, it's the world that wants to Form us. Be not conformed to the world. And here, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, or it's not operating in him as it should. So, the world. What is the world that we're not supposed to love? <clears throat> is it the people of the world? <laughs> no, not at all. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Well, the word world there can't mean what it means here. Because here God says, don't love the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world. In John 3.16, he loves the world of people. All of mankind, all the different people groups. He loves the world of people. You and I should love the world of people. He doesn't mean the globe. Uh, the, the, <clears throat> the globe in, on which we live... But there is another way in which the term world is used, describing lost humanity and the habits and the deeds of lost humanity. 
One of the best definitions I ever found on the word came from Kenneth Wiest, the great Greek scholar, uh, scholar excuse me, from Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he was a man with a great mind and taking the word in the context of where this phrase is used, the world and so forth, he put together quite a lengthy definition. From his definition, I shortened it to this definition of what the world is. The world is, that is the world we're not supposed to love, is the philosophies, teachings, attitudes, morals, behavior, and lifestyles of lost humanity which are in opposition to God and his word. Now that last phrase is important because not everything the world does is worldly in this sense. Not everything the world does is in opposition to God and his word. A lot of it is, but not all of it. So it's not everything that lost humanity does. For instance... Uh, lost humanity in America, most of us, uh, uh, people in America, including lost humanity, they get in their cars and they drive to work every morning. Does that mean if you and I get in our car and drive to work in the morning that we're worldly because we're doing what the world does? The world goes to work every day. Does that mean we're worldly if we go to work every day? You see my point? Not everything the world does is worldly. And this is important because sometimes anything, in some religious circles, anything people don't like, they call it worldly. And they condemn it because they don't like it. And the world does it. But the world does a lot of things. The world, for instance, has, uh, in America anyway, the world, the lost humanity, they they have heat in their home. Are you and I worldly if we have heat in our home? What about air conditioning? I tell you, I, I'm just, I feel like jumping up and down praising the Lord for heat and air conditioning, don't you? I'm thankful for heat and air conditioning. The world does the two, though. The, the world has those things, and the world does those things. So it has to be the things that are in opposition to God and His Word. Do you see the difference? Because this is so important. In, in, <clears throat> in many circles, there is great confusion about what the world is, Anything you do that somebody don't like, they'll say it's worldly. Uh, when I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Karen and I lived there. That's where I went to Bible college, and, and uh, I could tell you some good stories, but I only got time to tell you this one. But there was one particular church, and they would not allow people to wear uh, leisure suits. How many of you remember leisure suits? I know us old folks will, leisure suits. Yeah, yeah. For you young folks, it was, a, it was like a, a suit, but the collar on, uh, on the suit was real big, you know, and you didn't wear a tie, and the shirt usually had a big old collar too, and then you'd pull that big old collar, you know, over your, over your coat collar. And uh, this church said that was worldly. And if you came to church with a leisure suit on, they would turn you away at the door. And I'm not kidding. You could not go in the door because they said it was worldly. Now, I agree it was ugly. I mean, it was ugly. It was real ugly. I agree with that. But it wasn't worldly. 
It wasn't a philosophy or a teaching or an attitude that lost humanity has that's in opposition to God's Word. It was just ugly clothes. And you could see how that would apply in many, many, many places. So here's a definition of the world. And that's trying to force us. You see, I think this is important because there's... The world is all around us. We can see the real world by this definition. We can see it everywhere we look all around us. There's no use in us making up things to say is worldly when we're really uh, being uh, attacked by what is truly the world as it's defined here. Well, let's continue the story. Of course, uh, the time came and everybody bowed except the three Hebrew children. And of course... Uh, there's always somebody to criticize in there. There's always somebody who criticizes you if you're living for Jesus. And so there was that group there, and they said, Oh, those three Jewish men, <coughs> they didn't bow, so they ran to the officials and told Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was mad. Boy, was he mad. He was beside himself mad. He said, Bring them to me. And so they brought the uh, three Jewish men to him. Remember, they're in their mid-30s maybe. And... Um, and uh, he says to them, I'm going to give you one more chance, boys. You've been serving well, and I know you're valuable to the nation. And I'm, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. And, uh, and he said, uh, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow. And if you don't bow, you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace and no God, not even your God you claim to be as the God of the Bible, no God can deliver you out of my hand because I am the king. And he was the greatest man on earth. He was the most powerful man on all the earth. And he said, no one can deliver you out of my hand. Let's pick up the story now in, uh, in chapter 3. And let's pick it up in uh, maybe... Uh, Verse 15, the last part of verse 15 maybe. And notice where he says, And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now, 20 years earlier, when Daniel interpreted that dream for him, he said there's no God like the God. He's the, he's the Lord of all the gods and so forth. But, uh, but he's forgotten that, of course. And now he thinks he's the most powerful one in the universe and who is the God, he says, that will deliver you out of my hand? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. They said, we don't even have to think about it. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to discuss it. We don't have to uh, write out a letter so we'll be sure we get it right. We know what we're going to do. And so they continue, uh, if, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Wow, can you imagine how the king felt? He just got through saying, in effect, I, I'm the greatest man on earth. No one or no God can deliver you out of my hand. And these three Jewish people now say, oh yeah, uh, if God wants to, we'll have you know God can deliver us out of your hand. Wow. And then the next verse is profound. Some, these are 
These three verses are one of the great testimonies of Scripture. Verse 18 says, But if not, if he, if he does not choose to deliver us, if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Wow. They said, we might die in that furnace, but if we do, it's okay. We're not going to bow anyway. Even if we die in that furnace, we're not going to bow to that idol, nor worship. Wow, we need men and women that way today, don't we? With God's strength to take a stand for what's right and what's good and not be conformed to this world and not let the world push us around. They took their stand. Now, they did not know. You and I know the story. They did not know this story. <laughs> right? They did not know they were going to get delivered. As far as they knew, maybe they were going to be tortured in that fire and die in that fire. But they still were not going to bow. This is biblical faith right here. There is something that Dr. Warren Wearsby called, quote, commercial faith. He explained it something like this. It's a, it's a faith that kind of bargains with God. And it has the idea that faith is a means to get what you want. You've heard people talk that way, haven't you? I've heard preachers preach that way too. That faith is a way to get what you want. You want a new house? If you had enough faith, if you just had enough faith, God would heal you of that cancer. If you just had enough faith, God would put your marriage back together. If you just had enough faith, then you could live in a million-dollar house and drive a new car. If you just had enough faith, you could have everything you want. That's not biblical faith. That's commercialism, materialism, pragmatism. Faith, biblical faith is... <laughs> Even if you kill me, I'm going to do what the Lord wants. Even if it costs me my life. And so, they exercise biblical faith. And it's a beautiful thing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said, Guys, you have inspired me. Your faith is so wonderful, that I just feel really inspired. Y'all are some really good people. He didn't say that, did he? He became furious. I mean, he was so angry. I'm sure the veins stuck out in his neck and on his forehead. And, uh, and he said, uh, heat that furnace up seven times higher than it's ever been. They started heating that furnace up. And uh, he, told his, uh, he told his strongest, best soldiers, tie these three men up and throw them in the furnace. Now, everybody's watching. They're still on the plane. The, the idol's right in front of them, and the furnace was right there. And so people are watching, and uh, he's going to make examples out of them. This is what happens when you buck my authority. This is what happens when you talk back to the king. And uh, so he commanded them, and uh, they go into the fiery furnace. Here is... The 
uh, trial temptation complex of conformity. The second part of the chapter, if you look back at your screen here, second part of the chapter is the trial temptation complex of afflictions. When they're in the fire, this whole chapter is an affliction, but when they're in the fire, that's the pinnacle of their affliction. They're thrown into the fire. And you and I go through fires of adversity, of course. Everyone does. Then the third, the last part of the chapter is uh, trial and temptation of blessings. Let me talk about that for just a moment only. And that is sometimes a dangerous place to be is when everything's going good. When things are hard, you're trusting the Lord. You're asking God to help you and so forth. And then you go through a season when everything smooths out and you're blessed and uh, you become bored with church. You become bored with God. You become bored with your lot in life. Some people, you see, they view God like a spare tire. If you need a spare tire, man, it's important. But if you don't need one, it's been back there in the trunk for years, and you don't even you never think about it because you haven't needed it. You know, you forget it, that it's, that tire's even there, and people treat God that way. When things are going well, you forget about God. You get bored with God, and that is a time in some people's lives when they when they walk away, get out of church, get out of fellowship away from the Lord. It's a dangerous time. These men, you see, after they came out of the fiery furnace, they were promoted, and they had a season of blessing. But now let's go back to the second one. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time. Uh, uh, wow, y'all are slow listeners. <laughs> Just, you know, we'll be through by one. Oh, wait a minute. I haven't set my watch back yet. Yeah, we got plenty of time. Um, so we come now to this second portion of affliction. So uh, he's angry. He puts his best soldiers, ties them up. They throw them in that furnace as heated seven times above normal. And it is so hot that when those men get close enough, the soldiers get close enough to throw the three Jewish men in there, they get so close that the fire kills the men who are throwing them in. That's how intense this heat was. And then, um, let's, let's pick it up in verse 23, I guess. Look at verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered, and said unto him, True, king, uh, O king, it's true. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Wow. 
What a moment in history. What a moment in time when God demonstrated himself in such a glorious way to this wicked old king and his wicked associates, idol-worshiping associates, and they were alive in the fire. You know, uh, Lee sang with the quartet this morning. Lee had a quartet called Brothers in Christ for many, many years, and and, uh, they would sing a lot for us, and we love to hear them sing. And the only reason they don't play now is Lee's arthritis has gotten so bad he can't play the guitar. And uh, they used to write a lot of their own songs. And one of the songs I remember them singing a lot, it it would say in the song, there's a fourth man... (laughs) In the midst of the fire, what are you going through? What fire are you facing? What difficulty is it? He's going to be right there with you in the midst of the fire. And he's the Lord of heaven and earth and the Lord of glory. Trust him. Trust him. And so they, uh, they're in the fire, and he even says it's like the Son of God. Now, he did not know about the Trinity He did not know that God the Father and God the Son are one and Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't know that. But uh, a lot of the pagan gods had sons and he knew that they served a God that they said was the true and living God and he just knew this whoever was in there with him was a supernatural being of some sort so he said it was like a son of God, of their God. Prophetically, he was, I think, absolutely right, though he didn't know it. This was the Son of God. This was the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ before he came to earth. We saw that appearance many times in the book of Genesis last year when we went through the book of Genesis. And so here's the Lord Jesus himself walking around with his, uh, with his servants. Uh, go back to my screen for a moment, would you please? And... Uh, Here's what it might have looked like. Some artists thought it might have looked like this. Maybe so. We don't know. It's pretty moving though. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar seeing such a thing as that? (laughs) And uh, when they came out then, verse 26 says, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the fiery furnace and, uh, and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come thither. And they came out of the midst of the fire. And then the next verses tell us their clothes didn't even smell like smoke and their clothes didn't get burnt. Their, uh, uh, their hair didn't get singed. I, I, you know I was a carpenter by trade and, and I worked in big construction sometime and, and sometimes we were clearing land and we'd build a big old fire uh, to burn, the, you know, burn what we had cleared and so forth. And uh, I'd come home and Karen would say, you built a fire today, didn't you? And I said, yeah, how'd you know? She said, your eyebrows are gone, you know? <laughs> My eyebrows got singed off. I got too close to the fire throwing the wood on there. But their hair was not singed and their clothes didn't even smell like fire and they were not hurt. And not only that, the ropes that had bound them, now they were free. One of the things God does when we're going through adversities is he sets us free just a little more and a little more from the things of this world and from the things that bind us. And so they were set 
free. And it was a glorious day and a glorious testimony. Verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. There's the key. They trusted in him and have changed the king's word. They trusted in him. Now, I think I would be amiss if I didn't remind you, though, that God doesn't always uh, bring you to the other side of the fiery trial. Sometimes people die of cancer. I know you don't want to hear this. People with strong faith that prayed and their mate prayed. The church prayed. But they died. People die of heart disease. People of faith. People die in automobile accidents. I know, I know those feel good, get what you want type of guys, they'll tell you if you have enough faith, you can get it. But sometimes marriages break up and people with faith and that marriage is never put back together. People with strong faith. You see, sometimes he, in his providence, keeps us from going through the fire. Have you, have you thought about this yet? Where was Daniel? Where was Daniel in all of this? I mean, he was the leader above the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, probably he was away on some kind of uh, business for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in God's providence, he didn't have to even go in the fire. But sometimes we go through the fire. Always the Lord's with us through the fire, always. And sometimes he brings us out on the other side without any hurt. But sometimes that fire takes us on to heaven. Or maybe it's something else and it doesn't get resolved in itself. And uh, that doesn't mean you didn't have faith. It just meant in God's providence it wasn't in His plan. Just like these men, these men knew that, didn't they? You remember what they said a few moments ago? Now, he can deliver us if he wants to, but if he doesn't, we'll die in that fire. But we're not going to bow. Sometimes God's people die in the fire, but the Lord is right with them. But the truth is, that's even a better deliverance because now they're, they're not just delivered back into life, they're delivered on to heaven to be with Christ. Uh, and all the pains and sorrows of life are behind them. That's even a greater deliverance, isn't it? In the, in the book of Hebrews, uh, in the 11th chapter, it speaks about, of course, the heroes of the faith. That's Old Testament heroes. I've got to find a clock that's right. There it is. There's one. Uh, that one back there says 7 o'clock, I think. Mine says 11 o'clock. Uh, so it names all these heroes of the faith. And then it gets close to the end right here and it says, Who through faith stopped the mouth of lions. That must be a reference to Daniel, don't you guess? 
who through faith quenched the violence of the fire. That must be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Boy, we could see a lot of those in the Old Testament. Women received their dead, raised to life again, at least twice in the Old Testament. And others, by, again, that idea of who through faith, others through faith were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Maybe they could have gotten deliverance if they would have bowed down to the God. You know, people today around the world who are believers in Christ, some of them are tortured. Are we going to say, are we going to let those feel-good preachers say it's because they didn't have enough faith? If they'd have had enough faith, it wouldn't have happened to them. No, they've got plenty of faith. Probably stronger than mine and stronger than yours. But they're tortured. Sometimes they die at the hand of the enemies. So you don't always get cured of cancer or whatever else you're facing. But the Lord will go with you through it always, always. Now, and the rest of this, notice the rest of it as it elaborates on that thought. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Uh, they were tempted. They were slain with a sword of whom the world was not worthy. God is not saying this group didn't have as much faith as that first group. Not at all. He's saying they had just as much faith. But in, in faith they endured and even died for God. And in sometimes God intervened in a miraculous way as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is a song that we sing sometimes here that's entitled, uh, I Will Trust in You. Here's some of the words. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers, as I cry out to you, I will trust. I will trust in you. Even if you don't move the mountain, I'm going to keep trusting. To use the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, we're going to die in there trusting Him. Some of the other words to this song says, I confess my hands are weary. I need your rest. No matter what I face, you're by my side. I... I want what you want, Lord, and nothing less. Then there's a part of the song that says, You are my strength and comfort. You always are always, your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There's not a place where I'll go. You've not already stood. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He doesn't always move the mountains. He can, but he doesn't always move them. But he'll go with you always and be your strength. Would you bow your heads, please? In a moment, 